Hello again and welcome to this week's episode of Knowing God with Heart and Mind. I'm Pastor Dan and this is your virtual church classroom Bible study presented each week by Shiloh United Methodist Church and yours truly. We're out of Jasper, Indiana, and it is my pleasure, as always, to share the microphone with my daughter Bethany as we study the book of Revelation. We have a special uh, Bible study podcast today um, at the Shiloh United Methodist Church this past Sunday. We had a live uh, recorded Q&A session where we let people ask their questions and we had some discussion and uh, we're going to play a portion of that for you on this week's episode so you can hear uh, maybe your own voices, but uh, we're going to hear the conversation that was uh, conducted at Shiloh United Methodist Church on Sunday, July the 29th at about 9 o'clock in the morning. This is episode 17. Our psalm reading today is Psalm 18. Psalm 18 is described in the Bible as for the director of music, of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang to the Lord the words of this song when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I called to the Lord who is worthy of praise and I have been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me, the torments of destruction overwhelmed me, the cords of the grave coiled around me and the snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. For from his temple he heard my voice. My cry came before him into his ears. The earth trembled and quaked, and the foundations of the mountains shook. They trembled because he was angry. Smoke rose from his nostrils, consuming fire came from his mouth. Burning coals blazed out of it. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He mounted the cherubim and flew. He soared on the wings of the wind. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him, the dark rain clouds of the sky. Out of the brightness of his presence, clouds advanced with hailstorms and bolts of lightning. The Lord thundered from heaven. The voice of the Most High resounded. He shot his arrows and scattered the enemy. With great bolts of lightning, he routed them. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare. At your rebuke, Lord, at the blast of breath from your nostrils. He reached down from on high and took hold of me. He drew me out of deep waters. He rescued me from my powerful enemy, from my foes who were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my disaster, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a spacious place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord has dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the the cleanness of my hands. He has rewarded me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord. I am not guilty of turning from my God. All his laws are before me. I have not turned away from his 
decrees. I have been blameless before him and have kept myself from sin. The Lord has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness of my hands in his sight. To the faithful you show your, yourself faithful. To the blameless you show yourself blameless. To the pure you show yourself pure. But to the devious you show yourself shrewd. You save the humble, but bring low those whose eyes are haughty. You, Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. With your help, I can advance against a troop. With my God, I can scale a wall. As for God, his way is perfect. The Lord's words is flawless. He shields all who take refuge in him. For who is God besides the Lord? And who is the rock except our God? It is God who arms me with strength and keeps my way secure. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He causes me to stand on the heights. He trains my hands for battle. My arms can bend a bow, a bow of bronze. You make your saving help my shield and your right hand sustains me. You help me. Your, your help has made me great. You provide a broad path for my feet so that my ankles do not give way. I pursue my enemies and overlook them. I did not turn back till they were destroyed. I crushed them so that they could not rise. They fell beneath my feet. You armed me with strength for battle. You humbled my adversaries before me. You made my enemies turn their backs in flight and I destroyed my foes. They cried for help, but there was no one to save them. To the Lord, but he did not answer. I beat them as, a fine, as fine as windblown dust. I trampled them like mud in the streets. You have delivered me from the attacks of the people. You have made me the head of nations. People I did not know now serve me. Foreigners cower before me. As soon as they hear of me, they obey me. They all lose heart. They come trembling from their strongholds. The Lord lives. Praise be to my rock. Exalted be my God and Savior. He is God who avenges me, who subdues nations under me, who saves me from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. From a violent man you rescued me. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing the praises of your name. He gives his heart, his king, great victories. He shows unfailing love to his anointed, to David, and to his descendants forever.
Lord, that's our prayer. Let us join with the psalmist and the singer in saying, we will love you with all our strength. Lord, we will turn to you in all of our times, whether good or bad. We will look to you for the direction for our lives. We will look to you for the provision we need and the protection from your enemies who are our enemies. Oh God, we love you and we desire to obey you. And this is why we study your word together, to know your will, to know your mind, to hear that which flows from your heart to our hearts. Oh God, bless us as we come together in this place of prayer and study, especially we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Be safe from my enemies The cords of death were wrapped around me The floods of ungodliness made me afraid Sorrows of hell surrounded me, and I was taunted by the jaws of death. And in my anguish, I called on Yahweh. My cry came before Him into His temple. And when my cry came to Almighty God, thank you for bringing us together this morning, making us the family of faith that we are, united by your family, the Holy Trinity. We are one in the Spirit now with you and with each other. On this special Sunday where we're doing some things that are different from the routine, we're all a little uneasy, and uh, I'm chief among them. And so, Lord, I give you this time with the confidence that you are completely comfortable with what we are about to be and do together, knowing that you will direct our words, our deeds, and that you will preside over our worship and fellowship and friendship together. Please bless everyone present, Lord, and answer all of the prayers spoken and unspoken as we unite together in Jesus' name. Amen. So, as a combined Sunday school class, I'm aware that all of you are in Sunday school classes, or, or most of you have been in Sunday school classes, and you cover a lot of different topics. And so here's your question and answer time. You can, you can pick my brain. Bethany's up here uh, in, in two ways. She's here because she helps me present that Revelation Bible study. And so if you have a question about that in particular, she may have a much better answer than I do. Um, she's shaking her head. And I she, just wouldn't assume. She's just very humble, and yet she's a, she's a great thinker. Um, if I were going to give you some basic guidelines for Bible study, one of the most significant and important things I could tell you is, is learn your critical thinking skills. Critical thinking is what they used to teach you in the first years of college. You know, it used to be, when I was young anyway, in high school, they were teaching you to get ready for college, more or less. They wanted you to be prepared for the real world, but they, there was a sense of, of, if you're gonna go to college and you need to know how to write 
uh, and express your thoughts and, and be able to indicate in some way that you have learned something. And then in college, they're trying to teach you to develop a uh, thesis and process it, you know. And so as you go into the higher levels of higher education, postgraduate, that kind of thing, the idea is that you're trying to demonstrate your ability to think. Well, you don't have to be a college graduate. You don't even have to be a high school graduate to learn how to do critical thinking. If I could sum critical thinking up in a simple phrase, it would be this. Don't react, research. <laughs> how many times have you heard something and then just reacted to it? How many times have you heard something said by someone else and then watched another person in the crowd react? Or maybe when you're on Facebook or one of these social media sites and you see someone post something that's probably not true and then there's this list of reactions. But nobody actually knows if what they're responding to is actually true. And so it's never been easier to say something, anything, no matter how crazy, and then get all kinds of reactions. So critical thinking is a process of, instead of reacting, researching. And so as your resident Bible guide and your pastor is the shepherd of the flock of Jesus, my primary responsibility, I think, is to teach you how to do critical thinking from a Christian perspective. I want you to have a Judeo-Christian worldview as opposed to a Greek worldview, if you've been listening in the Sunday, or the Sunday sermons, rather. So Sunday school is the place where we develop our critical thinking. Now, I've been calling it friendship and learning since I've been here, and I've even gotten some good-natured jabs about that because, you know, it's, it's Bible school and it happens on Sunday, therefore Sunday school. But we are living in a world that is in a... In America right now, it's pretty much post-Christian culture, whether we like to believe that or not. Jasper may not be in a post-Christian culture, but the world, pretty much in this Western world as we know it, doesn't consider Christianity particularly relevant, and there's even a hostility towards Christianity. <clears throat> so it's never been more important for us to be able to apply our critical thinking skills and our ability to... to interact with people who have no understanding of what Christianity is about. They, they have heard things and they have reacted. And the only way you're going to get somebody to change their mind about Christians and Christianity is to get them to do the research. So instead of reacting, we research. So critical thinking is the absolute vital skill that you have to have I think, to be a solid, productive Christian in a essentially pagan world. And Bethany has been my star pupil in the critical thinking realm. I, all of my children, we have five children, you only know the three basically because the others live away and just haven't been able to be here when you've had a chance to meet them. The other, the, the, uh, Jonathan and Alex are both married and live elsewhere in Indiana and just haven't been here yet with their families, but you know these guys 
And all of them will tell you that when they were going into high school and they were moaning and groaning about having to write papers and things like that, I basically sent them to, the mother, to their mother for the math and they came to me for the critical thinking, the literature, the, you know, so, so I was the guy that helped them interpret, you know, big ideas, but was no help to them at all with algebra. And I still am no use to them in algebra, but somehow it's okay. But Bethany and I have for, gosh, you would come home from school. One of the benefits of, of, of pastoral ministry for me that I really seized upon is, is that I can manage my schedule pretty well. Uh, I work a lot, trust me. You know, I, I've tracked my hours from time to time to make sure I can be accountable to you for them. And I generally average around 50 to 70 hours a week. It just kind of depends, you know. But I get to go home. For the last 25 years, I've been able to go home and be uh, at home when my kids get off the bus, and that has meant the world to me. To be there when they get off the bus, to hear about their day, to discuss it with them. And Bethany and I have had, since kindergarten, we've been having these discussions. And so it was very natural for her to help me with the podcast Bible study because I was getting a little tired of the sound of my own voice on this podcast and I've been doing it for three or four years now and it got so much better when Bethany started helping me with it because I had someone to talk to plus she's just much more engaging and interesting than I am in my opinion anyway but it all comes back to this critical thinking so that's what I would like for you to hear as we begin any kind of discussion um, somebody was just talking to me about 8 o'clock or so about today's reading for the service from Revelation 5. And I went into my rant, Bethany. They haven't heard you speak yet. Why don't you do your version of my rant? Tell them what, uh, no. tell them what Dad usually rants about Revelation. Go ahead. Which thing? Well, what's the, what's the first... What's the first rant you always hear when I go off about Revelation? Oh, how people say Revelation. Yeah, well, go on. Okay. Um, he doesn't like it when people say Revelations, and he rants about it. That's the first one. I, and, and you have a problem with people assuming that Revelation's really dark and terrifying and horrible and everything bad happens, and it's just like the most awful thing ever. Because it's not, and Revelation chapter 5 is really, really beautiful and pretty mm -hmm. and nice. <laughs> Thank you. Was that a good sum up? Yeah, you've done okay. well. So, so in every church except Shiloh so far, sooner or later someone will come up to me and they'll say, Pastor Dan, do you ever preach on Revelations? I'm sorry for being condescending, but it's really funny because when I hear that, I know right away that... This is a person who probably hasn't read it, but they've heard a lot of really exciting preaching from Revelations. And I like the Bible. I love the Bible, if you haven't figured that out. I love the Bible, and I read the whole Bible. And uh, I haven't introduced this program here yet, but there is, I promise you, on the horizon, a plan for us to have a church-wide reading of the Bible in 90 days. It can be done. I've led other churches through this. My family's done it. You can read the entire Bible in 90 days. 
And it's important to read the entire Bible sooner or later, because if you don't, you miss the big picture. You don't realize until you read the whole Bible that this is one story. It's uh, 40, it's 66 books and roughly 40 authors, okay? But it's one story that has been compiled by the Holy Spirit over time. And that's what you realize when you read the whole Bible. And so when I, when I hear people wanting to single out particular verses or single books or particular things, I feel like what they're doing is cherry-picking the most exciting and interesting parts. That, that, And there's nothing wrong with that as a beginning. And I hope none of you feel hurt by what I'm saying. I'm just challenging you to grow into your relationship with God through, through the Bible. And what you'll find after you've read the whole Bible is that you'll go back and look at Revelation and you realize very clearly that it is the final chapter of the story. And it isn't this sensational, gloomy, dark, terrible. I'll tell you what, it's some of the most beautifully crafted literature in mm -hmm. the Bible. It is a remarkably well-structured book, and it is a book that ought to give you cold shivers in the way that it completely sums up the whole entire Bible. I mean, if I were a book critic, I would look at Revelation and say, you know, this is the perfect summation of the entire volume. And it makes everything that you've read up to that point make sense. And we're going to have a little taste of that in the worship today. But it all comes down to reading the book of Revelation as you would any other book in the Bible. Now, I'm doing all the talking here, and I, I have a microphone that, that John has, and I want to ask a question I would like very much for some of you to go ahead and answer. And, and, and Bethany is stretching herself to sit up here Miked in front of you, so no one has to do anything that isn't scary for the person sitting right next to me here. So just take the microphone, and I would ask this question: What, what are your initial thoughts whenever somebody mentions the Book of Revelation? I'd like to hear some different ideas. Just when, whenever somebody talks about the Book of Revelation in the Bible, what what is the first thing that you tend to think? Here we go, right over here. <laughs> End of the world. Yeah. Now we're recording this, so I want to get you on microphone. In the in you know, so Revelation is the book about the end of the world. Okay, what else? All right, I want you to say that again, so everybody can hear you <laughs> with the microphone. Thank you so much. It's a book of hope for uh, all believers. A book of hope for all believers. Cool. What else? No bad answers, because I'm really just curious. What, what do you think of when you hear about that book? So many interpretations. Mm-hmm. Right, right in front of you, John. Elaine. I need help understanding it. I need help understanding it, yeah. What else? Do you ever try to avoid the book? Um, I've heard that a lot of people have gone to church all their life and they've never heard anybody talk about it in church or in the, I, you know, it's kind of funny. It's not, 
I served a church that will go unnamed where there was a Sunday school class that had been same half a dozen or so people at its core for 20 years. And they basically went back and forth from studying Revelation to the book of Daniel and then back to Revelation and then back to the book of Daniel. You might say they were obsessed with the end of the world. And, and I decided to preach from Revelation in that church. And boy, did it mess with their heads. But I'll just let you figure out why. Any other initial thoughts on the book of Revelation? Does, yeah, go ahead, John. Jesus Christ. Oh, hello. Hey. <laughs> yeah, the coming of Jesus. I'd the coming of Jesus. Thing. Yeah. Why don't you think, tell me why you think, John, you can start. Yeah. Why do you think preachers especially avoid the book of Revelation? Well, I think that people don't want the world to end. They want it to keep going. And eventually I've run into people where they're just kind of like, hey, I'm okay with Jesus coming back, but I want him to come back after my life is done. And it's like, man, we should, and, and I've, I've felt that way before, um, but I think that's just hard for people to accept. They should be looking forward to Jesus coming back because he's going to set all things right. Um, and I think for a lot of people, especially pastors and preachers, it's, it's, it is, it's difficult to interpret. And that's probably one of the hardest things out of the whole book is there's so many mixed messages. And since there's no definitive thing that we can agree on, people just avoid it. Yeah. I like that. What else? What, anybody else have a thought on that? Why, why do you think? Because I find that there are basically two camps. There are people like my Sunday school class at that other church that can't stop looking at it. And it's like, it's like they're fixated on the end of the world. But then you've got a whole other camp where it's like we're not even going there that book's too mysterious it's what else any other thoughts on that can I say well of course you okay. can I think I think that it could, it's with pastors especially it's both of those things because either it's a really big draw to get people in the door to talk about the end of the world or they want to avoid talking about the end of the world and talk about all the pretty fun stories in the bible and the good happy stuff to get people in the door. Yeah. It's like, it's either scary and we're not gonna go there because people don't wanna talk about the end of the world or it's exciting and awesome and that's when they start maybe interpreting it in ways that it shouldn't be interpreted. Mm -hmm. And people hear the, the scary stuff that maybe isn't actually in there. Is there anybody that would be willing to admit that they've probably heard more hearsay about the book of Revelation than they've actually taken out of the pages? I mean, you don't have to admit that, but wouldn't you agree that that's a pretty common problem? Uh, how many? I think it's the book that's the most abused in popular culture. Yeah, how many so of you, you read any it. of the Left Behind books back in the 90s? One, two, yeah, yeah. I did too. I read the whole series. I thought it was fascinating. What I realized was is that it's probably a series of books that was read by more Christians than anybody else, and yet the fundamental premise in the first chapter of the book is, is that the Christians would be gone. <laughs> so I'm just saying, if you critically think the Left Behind series, the first question you have to ask is, why were Christians so obsessed with this series? Why did I met Jerry Jenkins in Chicago several years ago, and my impression of him was, is, yeah, he's a big city author, 
you know, who sold a lot of books and made a lot of money. <laughs> and, and the impression was just sort of a summation of, yeah, you know, Christians will really buy into this story. Uh, they'll love it. But the interesting thing is, is that if you were reading it in a certain way as a Christian, you could say, oh, well, looks like I won't be around for the rest of this. Well, I'm done. And you finish it after chapter two, you're done. You know, and, and there's no 10 more books. But so, so what does that say about Christians? There's, there's this fear, I think, that we're going to suffer and we're going to go through hard times, that we're going to have to endure terrible things. Who's the oldest person in the room right now? Can I pick on you if you're, you're over... Is there anybody over 80? Anybody over 80? Okay. All right. Anybody over 75? I understand. <laughs> but that's because we're thinking like Greeks when we're sensitive about age because in Judeo-Christian biblical culture... People who are old are to be revered and honored and admired and to be, uh, to be sought after for their wisdom. And I'm about to prove that point. So as possibly our elders in this case, would you two tell me, have you been through some hard times in your lives? Have you seen some really bad times in the economy? Uh, have you seen our nation at war? Have you seen... Tell us about some of the terrible things that have happened in your lifetime. We had a point when we had two children in college, one yet to go, and no income for a period of about a year. Then we took on a huge debt to try to bring in some income. It all turned out well. But it was very difficult. Bill handled it much better than I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so that was a personal hard time. What was going on in the world during your life that was the most frightening? 18% interest at the time. That was very frightening because many times we took no paycheck out of the business that we had purchased so that we could pay our employees. So, honestly, I, that was in 88. Mm -hmm. So somebody help me with what was going on in the world at that well, time. Well, let's see, in 88 you had uh, uh, the Challenger had exploded. We had the, the Iran-Contra, which was where um, it looked like Reagan was doing dirty deals with with uh, the Ayatollah Khomeini and people like that. We had the oil, another oil embargo likely to happen. Uh, the Cold War was still running hot in 88. We hadn't seen the default. There was the fall of the, the Soviet Union was on the horizon, but with their potential for fall in the Soviet Union, there was a great potential for chaos that could all the Soviet republics that were breaking off had Soviet nuclear missile silos and things that they were now in control of and the central government wasn't in control of anymore. It was, it was a frightening time. Uh, in 1962, a couple of months before I was born, there was a Cuban Missile Crisis. This is where the Russians were bringing 
intercontinental ballistic missiles are bringing nuclear weapons to Cuba, which is only 90 miles at its closest point from Florida. And they were bringing nuclear missiles into Cuba to point at the United States. Now, right now, if they launched missiles from Russia at the United States, we have a little bit of time to push the buttons and launch something back at them, which creates the stalemate that has kept the peace for all the years that there has been this Cold War. So we may not have a Cold War like we used to have when the Soviet Union was huge, but the reality is if there was any chance at all that one side could strike faster than the other, then there was the potential that they would. And so the Cuban Missile Crisis was a huge danger. And it was a very scary time. And I often wonder, you know, what my mother and dad were thinking when they've got, you know, three children at home, you know, grade school age children and one on the way. And, and, and here is this potential nuclear war about to happen. So the point is, is that life is just dangerous. And Christians tend to forget, especially in this country, that life is just dangerous. And so if Revelation says that there's going to come a time when it's going to get even more dangerous and Christians may have to endure some of that, well, a student of history can tell you that there's been plenty of history of Christians enduring difficult times. And perhaps one of the problems we have as Christians with reading Revelation is, is that we're going to be confronted with the possibility that we might have to suffer that we might have to experience difficult times in the name of Christ. But isn't that part of what this is about? Isn't that a part of being a Christian? You know, you know the old joke, it's all fun and games till somebody gets an eye poked out or something like that. You know, Christianity feels like that. It's all fun and games until somebody gets persecuted. Well, I'm not saying there's any pleasure in the idea of being persecuted, but let me just say that if you were an exemplary uh, follower of Jesus Christ and it cost you something, wouldn't that be a kind of affirmation from the Lord? Isn't there a certain part of being Christian that should be a little scary and dangerous? Sometimes we have to read the scripture in order to hear something about being Christian that we don't really want to deal with. And that's, that's hard. It really is. So just by asking people who have been around a while, you survived. You're here. And there were, you know, we have children with uh, disabilities. We have five children. We've had, you know, we have a pretty close call few weeks ago with one of ours and and uh, you know you just push through and you keep your faith and you pray and you just carry on and you just adapt and carry on you know and uh, I think this is what Paul means when he says I've had plenty and I've had nothing you know I've been hungry and I've been thirsty and I've been fed and had plenty to drink I, you know it's just it's a journey to be a Christian. But I've digressed. I'm preaching a little here. Um, Whenever you start to go to a dark place, I like to remind you that, yes, all that suffering is going to happen, but the millennial kingdom is going to happen, so it's going to be okay. Yeah. So I'll just throw that out there. There's good things to look forward to. 
It's true. It's true. There's so much good that's out there. Mm -hmm. And this wasn't meant to be a downer, but to simply put it in perspective. You know, why would we want to know? Why would, here's, here's one of the things that I was going to say in one of the sermons that I don't think I ever got to, but you take, have you ever wondered in the English language, we have certain ways we spell things that don't seem to make sense. And have you ever looked at the word like, like uh, when you're filling out a form and it says sign here, right? S-I-G-N, right? The, there's this word sign and it's got a G in it. And you what? Well, because it's a variation of the word signature, right? Well, do you realize that in the Bible language, signs are signatures of God? When you read Revelation, for example, and it tells you that certain things are going to happen in the future, we call that prophecy. And in the Greek world, we think of prophecy as a process of predictions. And if the predictions come true, then we go, wow, they're great. Well, you know, if you want that kind of prophecy, you should be reading the tabloids that are in the grocery store at the checkout lane. That's where they get somebody to prophesy or predict what's going to happen. And so we're really looking at a prediction and whether it comes true. But in scriptural, biblical Christian worldview, what we're supposed to see prophecy as is God's signature. And so how do you know that what's happening in the world is what God intends to happen? In other words, if, are things running in the direction that God means for them to go? If you're driving from here to California, every now and again, you know, you like to say, okay, well, we should be in St. Louis by now, and it sure is a comfort when you see a sign that says St. Louis 100 miles, right? And then you figure you're going to have to get to Albuquerque or something eventually, and then you see a sign that says Albuquerque 100 miles, and you go, okay, good. This is what biblical prophecy does. Biblical prophecy gives you signs that tell you that God's with us, that God's on, on this, that this is all part of God's plan. So when we see, you know, when Jesus said, on the mount, I, I love this because this is such a beautiful story. He's, he's been preaching, but then he gives a little private briefing to his, his associates. And he says to them, uh, you know, because they ask him, he said, well, Jesus, when's all this going to happen? And he says, listen, you're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars and famine and disease. You're going to hear about all this, but that's not the time. Because it'll be like the days of Noah when this all starts to happen. He just told them exactly what to expect. He's given them the signs to look for. So, have you seen wars and rumors of wars in your lifetime? Have you seen famine and earthquakes? And have you seen wildfires? And have you seen riots in the streets? But Jesus hasn't come yet. Because he said... Those things will happen, but that's not when. Because it'll be like the days of Noah when that happens. Well, what was going on in the days of Noah? Because there's your clue right there. This is Jesus saying what to look for. It's not prophecy with, you know, it, in other words, it's prophecy because he's giving you signs to look for. He's, 
you know, have you ever given somebody directions to something? You say, well, you know, and this is the best kind of directions are those ones where they go, well, you go down that lane about three quarters of a mile and there's a farm. And they've got this big old hound dog that lays on the front porch. And every time he sees a car, he gets up and he starts a bellowing and barking like hound dogs do. That's when you turn right and there's a little cemetery. It's usually overgrown with grass, but you'll see it. It's over there. That's the kind of directions we give, right? Well, that's Jesus. He's saying, you'll know when these things are going to come to pass. Here's your sign, to quote Bill Engvall. Here's your sign. So that's the way to read this. But I, you know, I want to give you a chance to ask questions, and I haven't done a very good job of that. So do you have any thoughts or questions you want to throw out there? Everything's open. I, I mean, we'll take them. About studying Revelation. What's been one of your favorite parts about studying the book? I'm going to let Bethany answer first. I just love how it's written. It's, it's lyrical and, and the symbolism in it. Is, and not, not symbolism like what a lot of people think when they think Revelation because sometimes we get really off track. Not, and I'm not just me or not just anybody else, but sometimes we get really off track because we start trying to read everything in Revelation as symbolism. But the symbolism in a literary sense, that book is just absolutely stunning in how it's written. And if you haven't read it, that's, that would be like my number one reason for reading it, aside from, you know, like the obvious. But if you like the book of John, you should probably read Revelation because it's written in the same way. It's just, it's just beautiful. I just love reading it because it's pretty. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was yeah, with God, just, and the Word was God. Yeah. yeah, it's just beautiful language, yeah. And it's really fun to try and figure out, because something we've talked a lot about on the podcast is that John is writing it from his worldview. So he, things that he's seen, he's interpreting in ways he only he can. And the example we give is that if John saw something like an airplane, he wouldn't describe it as an airplane because that was not something that would have even remotely existed in his time. So it's really fun to try and figure out what he's seeing through his time and place because he's stepped out, he's stepped out of time when he is seeing all of these things. So we have no idea what he's seeing really. And it's really, it's just fun to try and use the clues to figure out where things are going, I guess. Yeah, I think, and what I've valued most out of studying Revelation over the years is that it helps me answer a lot of the questions that are on most people's minds. Where do we go when we die? What's God like? What's heaven like? What's it going to be like? You know, um, how do we really think about heaven and earth and the differences between? I have a better understanding of the star of Bethlehem at Christmas time because I've read Revelation. I have a better understanding of the miracles that have occurred throughout the history of the Bible. Um, my whole interpretation of the burning bush that Moses encountered is changed by reading the book of Revelation because now I believe that when Moses encountered the burning bush, he saw what looked like a bush on fire, but the fire was not consuming the bush. So what he was really looking at, in my opinion, based on reading Revelation, was probably an opening in the fabric of our space and time that God had created in order for Moses to enter 
the holy place, which is why I had to take off his shoes and change the way he was approaching it. So he was seeing a piece of the he was seeing a piece of the, the, the world as he knew it, but suddenly there's this hole in the fabric of space and time there. And to him it looks like fire. Well I read in Revelation that when Jesus opens the door between the realm of God and John's space and time that the light is so bright you can barely stand it. I see where on the Mount of Transfiguration the three apostles are witnessing Jesus and he looks like he's whiter than lightning. He's so bright. What is probably happening is that he is in a space between the fabric of our space and time and the timeless environment where God dwells. So what is heaven? What is the throne room of God like? I don't know because we're in a sort of terrarium, you might say. We're in a bubble of space and time that God has created for us to exist in. And every now and again, he pokes a hole through it so he can talk to us, you know. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's loud up there, <laughs> you know. Every time John talks about the throne room of God, he says, when someone spoke, it sounded like trumpets blasting, you know. When I looked, the light was so bright I could barely see. I've, apparently, our senses have been dulled significantly since paradise, which is kind of interesting because they used to walk in the cool of the evening with God in paradise. And they were naked, so they didn't get sunburned or anything. I mean, it's like, cool. Questions? Ah, you wouldn't believe it was me if I didn't say something like that. You know, Moses got a heavenly suntan. Do you remember that? He went up on the mountain to talk to God, and he came down, and his face was so weird that he had to, that he had to wear, like, curtains over his face, you know, because everybody was frightened of him. He had, like, a God tan. That was wonderful, but nobody heard you, because you, <laughs> except me. Would you mind saying that again, please? I, I was saying it makes sense that those folks couldn't assimilate very well those experiences because our humanity right now is in a kind of a fallen state. Our bodies aren't what they were in paradise, but one of the Christian promises is that we're going to receive new bodies, which can um, naturally be again in that environment that will be wonderful. So who can tell me where in the Bible we get a little hint at what our resurrection bodies will be like? Come on, it's not a trick question. Spirit doesn't have flesh and bone as I have. Yeah? And so the, I think there's an implication there's no blood but there is something tangible to it and maybe created in God's image. We may be closer than we think, but still don't have a clue. Yeah. Uh, because it, I think it's beyond w what we can fathom. But I think that's one place you have a glimpse of that. Yeah. So it's the resurrected Jesus that gives us a picture of what our resurrected bodies will be like. 
And apparently locked doors and windows don't make a whole lot of difference to the resurrected person because they just come on in anyway. Mm -hmm. I think it's going to be cool. I think it's going to be awesome. (laughs) So so the Bible, if you read the whole book, you get really great understandings of these things, don't you? So, So have you ever thought about what heaven would be like? Come on, I know a lot of us think about that. Has anybody ever thought about what heaven would be like? What's the most heavenly place on earth you've ever seen? Is there a place you've been that was just breathtakingly beautiful? I've seen a few. Mm-hmm. I've seen mountains in the high country that I've, I've hiked up in the Cascade Mountains and stood in a mountain pass at about 5,000 feet and just stood there in utter awe. Uh, Laura and I sat on a beach in the Caribbean not long ago in our little short vacation we had last winter um, and and it was just incredible just sitting there on this white sand watching these blue waters out there in front of us and it was just it was beautiful what if God made all of this and so it's tainted by sin it's messed up it's imperfect it's not as loud as it used to be but what if what if this is heaven just really dirtied up and messed up. Yes, sir. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I love that. Go ahead and say that again for the mic, please. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just hoping that not, uh, nothing changes uh, because it, uh, the world's beautiful as it is, you know, with, with that, without sin in it. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things, Twilight had a question too, that And then destroy it. Yeah. And for heaven, when you can beat heaven right here on earth, like he said, perfect world, no sin. See, God's always here. And as Jesus has made it possible, as followers of Christ, as spirit filled believers, we are Christ's presence on earth. We're here. And we make the world more beautiful. Now, I know my flaws and weaknesses, most of them, and you know the other ones, right? Because, you know, there's the ones I'm in denial about, and you know because you can watch, right? And that's what we can say about everybody. There's everything we don't like about ourselves, and then there's all that stuff people don't like about us, but we're in denial, and, and we don't even know. We're blind to it, right? But here's the reality is the world's better because we're here. If, if you're not the most precious saint that ever walked the earth but you believe in Jesus and you follow Christ as your your master and lord and you are filled with the holy spirit you're born again believer even if your spirit doesn't run hot with the holy spirit but you're a believer you make the world better because you're here Jesus said so now revelation is a book that describes how all of that sort of comes apart now you have to listen to the podcast to hear our theories about the rapture because I couldn't really do justice to that, especially in the next five minutes. But, but whatever you think about the rapture, the one thing that's clear in Revelation is that sooner or later in this decline, when Jesus opens the seven seals, it's, I, I call it in the podcast, I call it God gives, remember, remember back in the 70s, the, the, some state official would carry around a suitcase that had the launch codes in it and they called it the football. Remember that? 
So God in Revelation 5 gives the football to Jesus and he gives him the permission to open it up and use the launch codes, you know, and so all of a sudden the end of the world launch codes are going off one seal at a time, pop, 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 and then, you know, and we have, uh, we have in that story an indication that at one point we're not here anymore. This beautiful earth that God created that is tainted by sin is heaven. It really is. We're seeing what God made, and it is messed up. It's, you know, the sad thing is, is you can go to the most beautiful isolated beach in the world, and sooner or later, garbage will wash up, right? You know, you can go to the most beautiful mountain pass, and sooner or later, you'll find some snow that has all kinds of black crud in it because that's the pollution in the air that has passed over at, you know, but it's beautiful. It's still God's creation. In Revelation, we see that after those seals start popping, God's influence over the world is pulling out. One scholar describes the last half of Revelation as the first half of Genesis in reverse. In other words, in Genesis, we see this slow, steady progression of the ordering of the chaos and the creation of God's beautiful earth that God made. And in the last part of Revelation, we see the deconstruction of the order of creation until at the end, it's all chaos. And so the book ends the way it began. It just ends in reverse. It ends with God pulling out for a while. And then God comes in and does the renewal with resurrection bodies, with a resurrected earth. So what are you looking forward to in the resurrection? What are you looking forward to in heaven? This, but loud. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think it's all going to be the same, but I think every single thing is going, our senses are going to be overwhelmed. Like, I think colors are going to be brighter. I think sounds are going to be louder. I think, like, that's what I think about when I think about what heaven's going to be like. I don't really think about, like, how, like, what's going to look like. Yeah. I just think about how I'm going to react to everything and dinosaurs. <laughs> She's obsessed with having her own pet dinosaur. Not a pet. I just want to be friends. Well, be friends with a dinosaur in, in, in the days of, of uh, the resurrection. Yeah. So I hope that works out for you. I really think it's do. going to. I, I have faith, Dad. Amen. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts from anybody before we break to go and worship together? I hope this has been fun for you, and I thank you very much for the attentive listening and enjoyment of it. And God bless you now, and we'll see you upstairs for worship. Well, I hope you've been blessed by this special broadcast of the uh, uh, Knowing God with Heart and Mind Bible Study live by transcription, as they used to say in the old radio days, from the uh, Family Life Center, the Life Center, we like to call it now, at uh, Shiloh United Methodist Church last Sunday. Um, you know, you're welcome at Shiloh anytime. If you're not a regular attender there, we'd love to invite you and join us uh, to a joyous, uh, you know, uh, I actually talk better on Sunday mornings sometimes. I would like to invite you to join us on Sunday morning or anytime to uh, get to know the 
way that God uses Shiloh United Methodist Church in our community of Jasper, Indiana. If you're from farther away, then I encourage you to be a part of a church fellowship somewhere. Somewhere there are friends eager to meet with you in the name of Jesus Christ and to meet you where you are. And uh, it may take some searching, but you can find a place to be with the Lord, just as we have at Shiloh. Well, that's all it's going to do. That's all we're going to do for now at Shiloh's uh, Knowing God with Heart and Mind podcast today. So do uh, look us up on the internet at shilohum.org. That's S-H-I-L-O-H-U-M dot O-R-G. And of course, there's a link in the description of this podcast to our Facebook uh, Knowing God with Heart and Mind group. If you want to join that, just request to join. I'll personally invite you and welcome you and uh, join the conversation. If you can't be there in person, then join us by way of the Facebook page. For now, God bless you and goodbye.